Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing Brian Merrick. Brian is a well-known uh, software process and Agile uh, former consultant and um, programmer, and one of the original authors of the Agile Manifesto. Uh, Brian has written uh, two conventionally published books with the Pragmatic Programmers, Everyday Scripting with Ruby and Programming Cocoa with Ruby, and he is also the author of a couple of LeanPub books, including one of our bestsellers, Functional Programming for the Object-Oriented Programmer, and his latest book, An Outsider's Guide to Statically Typed Functional Programming. You can find out more about his work on his website at exemplar.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Merrick. In this interview, we're going to talk about Brian's career, his interests, uh, a little bit about Agile, and his work writing and publishing books. So thank you, Brian, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Thank you. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, I was doing a little bit of research on you beforehand, and I saw that um, I was surprised to see that uh, you are a former English major. Yes, that's... um... I graduated from the University of Illinois. I have uh, two bachelor's degrees from there and then a later master's. Uh, It turned out to be relatively easy to get both a degree in English and a degree in math and computer science. So I got both, and the English degree has arguably been more useful, uh, not least because if, as I have at times in my career, uh, gone up against people with PhDs uh, having only a master's degree, when you only have a master's degree, the pecking order is very clear. But when you tell them you have a, an English, you are an English major, you have now become an interdisciplinary person and are harder to put in a relative status position. So uh, I try not to talk too much about the CS degrees, but that was really the the main degree that I got. I was a computer programmer person from the beginning. And how did you first become interested in, in programming and in computers? What was your first experience with a computer, if you can recall? Uh, I was in... Um, I grew up in Illinois near a uh, community college sort of place, and they had – at that time, there were no uh, personal computers. This was 1976, and this college was – on the Plato computer-aided instruction network, which was an early graphical – CAI type system that was networked across the country and on Saturday mornings they would open it up so that people could use computers for what computers are good for which is playing games so on Saturday mornings I would go there and play games and there was one particular game Empire which was the inspiration for X-Trek later that was only available to programmers. So I wrangled my way into a programming job so I could play this game and turned out to be pretty good at programming. So when I, uh, and also much better at programming than I was at my normal summer job, which was working for my dad building houses. So I took the programming job, uh, later went off to college to be an astronomer, discovered I was, in fact, not smart enough to be an astronomer. And so I went back to programming uh, at the University of Illinois, which is more or less the area where I still am, just down the street. And when you first started programming, what was that? What was the process like? Uh, the the guy who I I worked for a chemistry professor and he would say, here are, it was, it's basically a, a lot of it was used for quizzes and such. So as I recall, he would say, here are the quizzes and the answers for a mass spectroscopy lab, go and do something with it. And so I would go and do something with it. Okay. And did you, um, at the time, uh, how would you, for example, if you needed to learn something, um, how did you go about doing that? You know, go to the library and get, get books? Well, as an instructional system, there was a fair amount on the system about implementing itself. It was in a weird programming language called Tutor, as in 
a, a learning tutor. Um, they also had uh, the early predecessor, a, a sort of a predecessor to Usenix news groups and what we might think of as things like Reddit or Hacker News nowadays. So you could ask questions there. You could all, they also had a a thing called term talk in which there were actual consultants available and you could essentially do uh, text messages on the computer back and forth to them and they would usually be able to answer your questions because that was their job. Oh, that's really interesting. I've never, I've never heard of that before. It was a pretty forward-thinking system. And um, uh, you moved on from there to... Uh be a professional programmer. Um, can mm-hmm. you talk about what your first experience was like? Did I mean, for example, I, I don't know, but did you work for large companies or small companies? I, I basically followed a friend of mine to a local startup. So they were a C shop. This was 1981. They were a C shop. They were uh, putting... PDP-11 computers on the ARPANET at the time. So they had the first implementation of TCP for the PDP-11. And so I actually, at one point, I've lost it since there, since, but I had something called the ARPANET phone book, which was the name and address and phone number of everyone on the ARPANET, which later became the internet. Uh, It was about an inch, inch and a half or so thick. So that was the, that was my experience. I was a C programmer doing uh, networking protocol modules that were supposed to, they were, they were basically using PDP 11s as sidebar processors for big military Burroughs mainframes, uh, which were overloaded and because in the event of nuclear war, there would be all sorts of problems uh, with these machines crashing. So they were offloading some of the code uh, onto these little side networking code onto little side sideboard processors. So I wrote some of the, the modules that were never actually used because we didn't have a nuclear war as it turns out. So shucks. Yeah. Um, it's funny. You, uh, just very much by coincidence, someone yesterday was just describing to me how as, as a metaphor for what the world is doing around, um, Donald Trump now that the, uh, internet was invented to be able to flow around problem areas. Um, and we might, get to that a little bit later. Um, one of the, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you um, a question that often comes up on this podcast I interview because a lot of lean pub authors are people involved in software development and have various histories. Um, one of the questions that often comes up is if you were starting out now, would you go to university and study computer science or would you pursue a different path? I'm uh big believer in the traditional liberal arts education, uh, learning how to think, getting a lot of broad experience, meeting a lot of odd people. Um, University of Illinois has, I don't know, 35,000-ish undergraduates. So you – in my day – computer programmers were not the glamorous romantic figures that they are now. They were the the geeks and the nerds who got picked on in high school. And so it was very wonderful to go to college and be able to find people like yourself. Um, so I'm not so much into – uh, vocational training. I like the traditional college. Yeah, it's um, it's something I, I've reflected on a little bit myself. That people often, um, especially people who um, may not have come from what might be described as a deprived social background, mm-hmm. often miss about 
the important one of some part of the value of of uh, university campus life is the broad range of people that you can meet, and then the acquaintance that you acquaintances that you can have throughout your life and friends, of course. Um, and it's one of the great secrets to. I mean, it's a bit of a tacky thing to say, but it's one of the secrets to middle class existence that you know if you end up in legal trouble, you can call your old lawyer friend from college, or you can if you have a question about medicine, you can call your doctor friend. And these, all these professions are actually don't seem, don't seem alien or inaccessible because you remember, you know, your awkward friend when they were 19, long before they became, you know, the district attorney or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's this, there's all kinds of very practical um, uh, things that one learns in that life, uh, in that time. Um, and so you, uh, worked professionally as a programmer in the eighties, and then you eventually transitioned to being a consultant. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about what, uh, led you to make that change. Somewhere along the line there, I had gotten, so I, I have spent quite a lot of my life, uh, expressing alarm at things around me uh, or being a troublemaker. And this company was actually quite nice in that for whatever reason, the, the, the guy who ran it kind of liked troublemakers. So I was not squelched as much as often happens when you have this socially maladroit, loudmouth, obnoxious programmer type wanting to fix everything. But in any case, I, I complained about testing and so was given the job of doing testing. And along the way, I wrote a code coverage tool in C. Uh, there was a modif- modification of the GNU C compiler. And somewhere along the line, uh, this company kept failing and being bought by larger companies, which then failed. Uh, the final company that failed was was Motorola, um, oh which has since failed and and is now a part of Google, I guess. So sell your Google stock. Uh, but I I decided I didn't much care for Motorola, which was which was not a great company in a lot of ways to work with. And I conceived of the idea of trading some work for this code coverage tool with the idea that I would open source it because it was based on GCC, so it had to be open sourced, and that I would make money off of consulting and uh, payments to upgrade the tool. So I was open source uh, before open source was cool, and in my first year of work, I made five hundred dollars, uh, gross, not net. <laughs> so, which was some concern, as as I recall, uh, for my mother-in-law, since I had recently gotten married, and and uh, my daughter was a, a resident at the vet school at Illinois, and she didn't have any money, and here I was having traded in my well-paying job for this job where I made $500 net per year. Uh, so that didn't work out. And I got into the training business, developing courses for uh, first tandem computer and then anyone who needed a training course in testing. Um, at first in black box testing for testers, later in the mid-90s, there was a big uh, xenophobic scare that the Japanese were going to do to the software industry, what they had done to the U.S. car industry. So everybody was trying to import Japanese methods into software companies. And one of the important things that the Japanese do, did and do is emphasize catching the error as close to the point where it occurs as possible. And that turned into a bunch of uh, a real emphasis among managers that their programmers learn how to test. So I became a person who taught programmers how to test. 
fairly unsuccessfully, as it turns out. And when the first web boom happened, uh, all the programmers who had been grudgingly forced to test the balance of power now shifted and nobody could tell programmers what to do or else they'd go and move to a startup. So that collapsed and I went back to conventional testing, training and consulting and such. So with respect to uh, testing and, um, you know, past concerns and controversies, what would you say is your reading of the state of affairs now? Uh, have Has there been a rapprochement between, you know, testing and star programmers or is there still a sense that you know one can't one can't tell the programmer what to do i i think the industry is now large enough and has enough centers of gravity that it's it's fairly hard to make a uh sweeping statement there are certain programmer cultures ruby is one where at least programmer testing is a very big deal and it's it's just part of the daily job uh, there are others where it's not and you still have the traditional antagonistic third-party testers throw it over the wall um so I don't think I, I would make a generalization or actually make much of a claim to to be up on things. Uh, I I've been, part of my reason for getting involved in Agile as long as I was involved in Agile, and I think a reason that lots of Agile old timers were involved in Agile was they wanted to be able to get jobs working with people who liked to work the way they do. And once we achieve that, kind of the rest of the world can go hang. And so I'm not so concerned with how many parts of the industry do things. I appreciate the spirit. Um, uh, I actually went moving on from, you know, through the 80s and the 90s now to um, the early 2000s. Um, as I'm sure many people listening know, and as I said in the introduction, you were one of the original signatories to the Manifesto for Agile Software Development. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about how how that meeting came about. Uh, you said that it, it sounds like there were, you know, a sort of coalescing sort of group of personalities who had similar interests and preferences um yes uh i was i was something of a fringe figure uh so i having said that from what i've heard other people say about the whole agile manifesto meeting is it's sort of a blind men in the elephant thing where everybody who was a, who was there has a a different recollection of really important things. Um, in any case, I, I was involved because I was a graduate student of Ralph Johnson, who was a big small talk person and was one of the authors of the first design patterns book. So design patterns largely came out of the small talk community, midwife by Kent Beck, in his role as midwifing all sorts of things. So as midwife by Kent Beck, design patterns uh, was a big movement then and is, has sort of fizzled since then. And Agile came out of the same community of people that were involved in design patterns. And in particular, um, my interaction with uh, that group was through Ralph Johnson's patterns reading group where we would read and discuss patterns and books on patterns, most notably Martin Fowler's books. So Martin Fowler knew me as a disembodied voice on the other side of recordings of our discussions. And he knew that I was the testing guy. And so when the, the, um, the, 
manifesto meeting, the Snowbird workshop, came together, he thought it would be a good idea to have somebody other than just a bunch of programmers there. And so he prevailed upon uh, Bob Martin or Alistair Coburn or someone to invite me. And so I was there as the token tester. And was there an intention to, when, when, you know, the meeting was convened or the gathering was convened, was there an intention to have an output like the 12 point manifesto or was that something that just kind of grew out of the general discussion and purpose of the, of the get together? My recollection, um, again, keeping in mind blind men, men and the elephant was that the, there was a twofold purpose for the manifesto meeting. One was to get together all of these people who had clearly development styles that had something in common and were clearly distinct from what was at the time the respectable way to do software development, get those people together and find out, talk about what it was in fact that they had in common. I don't recall if there was an explicit goal to produce a document or a manifesto or anything like that. Um, my The second of the purposes was to come up with a name uh, because those were – at the time, they were generally referred to as quote-unquote lightweight methods, at, which doesn't sound very – impressive. Uh, who wants to be a lightweight? So the goal was to have another name. They picked Agile. Who wouldn't want to be Agile? Do you want to be torpid or sluggish? No, you want to be Agile. So it was a marketing meeting in part, and it came up with a, a really good marketing term. One of the, um, amongst the, the principles in the manifesto, um, uh, I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to single out one to talk to you about, and it says, um, quote, um, build projects around motivated individuals, give them the environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. Um, and one of the reasons I found that striking was, um, when I first became involved in sort of the tech startup world, um, for a couple of reasons, I ended up going to a couple of conferences with agile in the name. Um, and I'm not a programmer myself. Um, and uh, it was a whole new world to me. And I went to all of the, it was, uh, there was an, it was sort of an unconference where people would propose panels and then you would go. And I went to all the ones where I thought I would get to listen to all the unhappiest people there um, and uh, to get to understand what their problems were. And there was just so much unhappiness. <laughs> Um, that I encountered around people. And you could tell it was because they were part of a kind of management environment where they were treated as interchangeable units to produce. Mm -hmm. um, was was something like that part of the, the motivation behind that principle? To, because the idea of building it around a motivated individual is quite the opposite of building a project around a manager you know, who's just going to treat individuals as interchangeable units to produce things according to a plan. And you, you referred to, you know, the old respectable way of doing things, which was called waterfall, um, which the, uh, maybe some people listening who are young programmers might not even have, have heard of. Um, uh, uh, but um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Was that, was that part of the atmosphere that, you know, you get, you can get these really smart, really motivated people, and then they can end up as being treated as mere cogs in a larger kind of managerial machine. Yes, that was definitely part of the, the spirit of the, the spirit of the age. Um, I don't know that I have much else to say about that. Uh, a lot of, a lot of the, the spirit of agile does go back to the small talk community 
a surprising number of people who were at that meeting had experience with small talk. Uh, and it had, it was a very free, the, the analogy that, um, Ward Cunningham has used is that it's shaping software in the way that a, a potter might shape, shape clay. And that is very different from the conventional approach to software, which is uh, executing a plan. It's very different from the conventional approach to software engineering, which was born out of defense contracting, where you have a traditionally very adversarial relationship between the customer and the the producer who were government versus company and the government the company is trying to do as little as they can to fulfill the terms of the contract and the the government is trying to be as precise as they can so that the company can't weasel out of it and that infected everything it infected the way testers reacted to programmers and it was very foreign from the whole small talk experience, which came out of Xerox Park industrial research labs, not going according to plan. So, yes, <laughs> is what I have to say to that. And do you think? Do you think there's something about um, the nature of the work of programming that can, I guess. Uh, you know, exacerbate um, a kind of adversarial relationship between a manager and a, and a worker. Um, for example, I mean, if you bring up defense contracting, you can you can imagine a kind of executive putting on the hard hat and coming down to the shipyard, and you know, seeing progress being made. You know, week after week or month after month, um, mm -hmm. you can see you know the sparks flying from the welder. Um, you can see the people milling about lifting things and putting things down and pallets and things like that. Um, and you can imagine the same person walking into a room full of programmers and there's just a bunch of people sitting in front of desks, you know, maybe typing, maybe with their heads in their hand, you know, maybe on Hacker News or something like that. Um, you know, do you think there's something inherent to the activity of programming that makes it difficult for certain kinds of management traditions to relate positively to? Well, that was in fact one of the, uh, a key selling point of agile was the frequent releases. And that was in addition to, uh, the benefit to programmers is that, and we can't actually estimate worth a damn um, for good reasons, I believe. But the fact is we can't estimate worth a damn. And managers were in the situation of demanding estimates because that was the only way they felt they had control. And so what we promised was we will give you working software every – month, couple weeks uh, that you can actually use and show. So you get that. We promise you that if you decide halfway through the project that actually we've got all the features that you want, you can just stop then and ship what you have there and fire everyone else and not finish the project, which is very appealing uh, to managers. And um, we also promised that what we didn't promise is we can't, we no longer pretend to tell you exactly what kind of text editor you will have at the end of a year, but we do promise you that you will have the best 
text editor, the most fully featured text editor with the most important features that you can have with this team at the end of that year. We just can't tell you now what that will be. And you get to do that. You get to know that because we're going to let you tell us what the most important things are, and we will do those right away rather than spending a year writing infrastructure before you can see anything. So it was an important, it's both a good way to develop things for most kinds of things, most kinds of software. Uh, and it was also a, a really powerful selling point. And um, what happened next, I guess, is a question that a lot of people might want to know the answer to. Um, so you have this meeting, um, you come up with the manifesto and sort of eventually, you know, blew up, as they say, and became this huge thing and, you know, spawned entire kind of industries of literature and training. Um, and uh, can you can you maybe explain the moment when you realized this was going to turn into something quite popular? Well, there were there were two uh, moments. One was Ward Cunningham had the very clever idea of putting the manifesto up on a website and allowing people to sign it. And it, the, the sheer flood of people who signed it made it pretty clear that this was not just 15 or 17 people representing 15 or 17 teams that had this weird idea. It was, it was speaking to both a frustration and a desire that lots of people had. So that was one thing. And the other was something like, you know, after not too many months, there was a write up in the, the British business magazine, the economist. And that that's read by a, a lot of people who do not, go signing manifestos on on the internet of the day uh so that was uh, all they were saying is here's this interesting thing that happened it was like a half page bit but that also indicated that it had some resonance at least with people who were have the job of being trend spotters for the kind of people who like to see business trends yeah, it's really it's really interesting. Um, you know, by the time something gets into the Economist, um, the assumption is there's already momentum behind it, and it's been around for a while. Mm -hmm. I think, um, which is part of the value that I think a lot of the, well, let's say like executive types who read it see in it. They don't they don't want to know about just something that happened. They want to know about something that's got some movement behind it. So there's this sort of irony that if you come across something for the first time in the economist you're way behind with, <laughs> yeah. with respect to that thing um but at that but you also there's sort of an implicit assurance that you know whether that there's that there's that there's at least this this thing has been around for some time and we're not just surfacing you know the latest the latest development to you um uh that's really interesting i didn't i didn't know about that um and so you uh, then spent a few years working as a consultant on Agile-related training. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I was uh, – at first I was Mr. Agile testing guy uh, because I had been Mr. Agile testing guy at that meeting. And so I did a fair amount of Agile testing and such. Later, it was apparent – you know, other people who were more in the trenches like Lisa Crispin and Elizabeth Hendrickson and Janet Gregory, uh, all, you know, they had more practical experience. So I sort of you know, yielded the crown to them and and went back to essentially programmer and team coaching teaching people, sitting with people and paraprogramming and t teaching TDD and refactoring and all these exotic new things. Yeah. And on, on that, on that, with respect to that sort of technique or, or, or way of, of going about uh, training and coaching, um, you talk 
about the importance of concrete examples. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit, a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, I guess, so that's always been a big, always been my thing, examples. Um, part of it may date back to the 80s when I was a little bit interested in artificial intelligence and was sort of struck by, uh, there was a book by Pat Winston about maybe Lisp or artificial intelligence or something. And he really stressed the importance of examples for learning algorithms. Um, I So I had been, to some extent, I, I, I refer to myself as a recovering abstractionist, uh, which ties into the functional programming stuff as well uh, later. But when I was just getting started in programming, I was very much about specifications and abstractions. And I worked on a theorem prover that you could prove the correctness of designs and such and so. And so I actually, somebody many years later gave me a copy of something I had written that said, you know, the specification is the only thing. The code is just like this thing that once you get the specification right, uh, of course the code is right. And I gradually lost my belief in that. Partly was through the AI stuff. Partly it was because as a tester, I found out how easily writing test cases or documentation for these well-thought-out ideas revealed flaws in the ideas and when documentation revealed it, it was often because if you're writing API documentation, you want it for a complicated API, you want to give examples of how to use it. And then you realize, oh, this thing doesn't make sense. And I also uh, fell under the influence of, uh, of bad companions in the philosophy of science like Paul Feyerabend and, and various of philosophers of science who have – and historians of science who have demonstrated that uh, the way we're supposed to do science, this very rule-driven ex- you know, hypothesis, experiment, et cetera thing, is in fact not the way science actually works. And so that made me question whether our fetish for abstraction was really the right thing. And so the opposite of abstraction is concreteness, examples. And when you say that's not how science really works, uh, how does it really work? Are you are you saying you know it's kind of in the lab and it's on the ground kind of thing? Um, there are there are a lot of different ideas about how science works. Um, I, I think there's a there's a set of uh, two things I can point to that are write ups on my web page. Uh, on the exampler.com blog, somewhere in there, I wrote a a series of posts which was about the philosopher of or yeah, philosopher slash anthropologist of science Bruno Latour, and he has ideas about how science works. Um, the other person that had a fair amount of influence on me was uh, Imri Lakatosh, who. I, I it would be going way, way off track if I were to talk about it that much. But there's a blog post on there that's based on uh, Lakatosh and what he concluded from the history of science about what really makes scientists uh, stake their career on theories. And for for example – uh, now you started me, but you can cut this out if uh, no, if it no, goes no. past. Um, one of the examples uh, that Lakatosh uses is Newton, everybody's favorite great scientist. Um, and I'll, just, I'll I'll cut to the chase. the The way we're supposed to think about science is that somebody proposes a theory and then people ex- and they make 
predictions based on the theory. And if the predictions fail, uh, then you're supposed to throw up, you know, get a new theory. And Lakatosh points out that Newton very much didn't do that. Um, for example, the uh, in the Principia, he talks a lot about the orbits of the planets, uh, but he doesn't talk about the orbit of the moon. And there are a couple reasons for that, but one of them is that for many years, his theory was, in fact, no good, not no good, but it was inaccurate when predicting the orbit of the moon. And that that is because the moon's center of mass isn't at the center of the sphere, which throws things off. And Mercury's orbit was known for a long time not to fit Newton. We needed Einstein to agree to, to figure that out. And the way Lakatos tells it, uh, Newton made these predictions and various people said to him, sorry, Isaac, your predictions don't actually work. And apparently the French Academy of Sciences, which had sort of a rivalry with the English, actually gave a prize for people who could observations that would refute Newton's theory of gravitation. And that prize was awarded numerous times over the decades. And they finally gave up on that when Edmund Halley used Newton's uh, theory to predict the arrival of a comet to a very high degree of accuracy. So among Lakatosh's arguments about science is that it's not surviving a bunch of refutations that makes that makes people believe in science. It's a dramatic confirmation like Einstein's general relativity. The dramatic confirmation was, you know, during a total eclipse stars, you can see, you can measure the bending of the light of the stars. And I think that applies as well as to software to get back to the ostensible topic of this, which is that, um, It is, for things like Agile and for things like databases, it's not the detailed argument answering objections that makes MongoDB suddenly boom. It's that you can suddenly do something with MongoDB that you couldn't do before. So the scalability bit. So – that's what I meant. Yeah, that, no, that's really interesting. Uh, it reminds me of a couple of things, one of which was Newton's interest in alchemy. Um, mm-hmm. And I've, I once came across a representation of that by a lecturer saying, um, the thing, looking back with our sort of Whiggish view of history, um, we might, we're, we're puzzled. You know, why would, you know, a scientist like, Newton have been so interested in something that to us looks like superstition or magic. And the point that was being made was that at the time, Newton was looking out in all kinds of directions um, with all kinds of uncertainty in front of him. Um, And it was partially his willingness to go down various, like any path that seemed appealing Mm -hmm. Um, that, that was, that was part of what, you know, led to his successes ultimately. And that it's in this, I mean, just sort of a riffing on the theme, um, that, uh, it's, it's easy to see things as sort of methodical, um, and systematic, uh, that aren't. So when you talk about a dramatic confirmation, you know, this, this is, this is an important thing. It's not necessarily, you know, in the dry study of calculation or something like that, that big changes happen, that they happen in a human context. Um, and why one thing, why people go down one path rather than another often has a lot of historical contingency to it as well, Mm -hmm. including things like, including things like national rivalry. Um, 
you know, <laughs> what's, what's the motivation there? Is it like, you know, purely scientific or is it, you know, the French and the English have always been at each other uh, in yes. various ways um, and that there's all kinds of things motivating uh, the activity that people undertake. Um, yeah, that's, that's a fascinating topic. Um, uh, actually, on, since we're talking about um, science and developments over time, you brought up AI. Uh, it wasn't something that I knew you had experience or interest in. Um, uh, and I guess, um, you know, this is a, a topic that's quite uh, in the news lately with AlphaGo um, uh, winning games against uh, the, I think, the global, the world uh, Go champion. Um, so, uh, you know, we can go in the news and we can read about what Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking think about AI, but I've got you here. So what does Brian Merrick think about um, the current state of AI? And uh, is it, are you on the side of, you know, it's something we should be worried about or the side of something else? Um, Brian Merrick is on the side of, I don't know enough to have an informed opinion. Okay. Okay. Um, that's a, that's a very fair answer. <laughs> um, uh, moving on a little bit, um, uh, just following the story of your career, um, at a certain point, I believe it may have been in the early two thousands, you uh, started writing books. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about why, uh, what, what motivated you to start, start doing that? Well, actually the first book was published in 1994, uh, it was a craft of software testing, and it was a book about programmer testing, uh, which is sadly still available, though it's – I don't want anybody to read it because uh, I don't think it's – it might have been okay in the time, but it's so incredibly out of date that it's embarrassing. Um, the – it was at the Agile Manifesto meeting that I met Andy Hunt and uh, Dave Thomas, who had recently published their book on Ruby, and I uh, got involved in Ruby as a result of that um, when it was still you – know, a, a new thing to the English-speaking world. And so I had been fairly involved in Ruby and – Knowing a scripting language like Ruby is uh, a really valuable thing, even for you know for testers, even for testers who aren't diving into the code. But you can write all sorts of useful little scripts to help you in your testing work. So because I was kind of in the – at that time, there were a lot fewer, I think, programmer – capable testers. And so I was encouraged to write a book on scripting for testers. And that was the first book that I wrote um, through the Pragmatic Press. Uh, and then they later asked me to write a book on using Ruby to write uh, web app, uh, I'm sorry, Macintosh applications. And uh, so like everything in my career, I sort of blundered into it. And um, did you find it enjoyable? Uh, yeah. At, at I, first? Yeah. Well, I had, uh, I've always been fairly good at writing, uh, which was even more unusual than it is now in among programmer type people. And I always enjoyed writing. So it was natural. And it was in English majors. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and um, eventually you made your way to LeanPub and self-published uh, functional programming for the object oriented programmer. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, that decision. I mean, why, why did you decide to self-publish that project rather than uh, publish it through a conventional publishing route? Um, so I, I got it. I had been doing Lisp. Uh, in the 80s, the early 80s during the big AI boom of around 82, 83. Uh, and in fact, my, my, I was on, uh, I was 
my experience with AI was because I was a Lisp implementer. Uh, I was one of the people who implemented what we would now call a virtual machine for a common Lisp for this extremely obscure brand of computer that no longer exists from a company that no longer exists. So I was in love with Lisp and happened to stumble across Glenn Vanderberg when I was visiting a company and we sat down and did some closure and closure is Lisp with a possibility of surviving. So I, I got fairly heavily involved in closure uh, while not making any money from it, but just as a hobbyist sort of thing. And uh, I do not remember what provoked me to decide to write the book. I knew it was had something to do with not being happy with the existing books that were out there. Um, and I picked Lean Pub for two reasons. One was just as an experiment to try it out uh, and because I wasn't so sure this book would work out. And if I did it on Lean Pub as opposed to signing a contract with the pragmatic bookshelf, um, I could just say, yeah, I'm going to stop doing this book. So I did. And uh, also because I, that gave me control of my own schedule. I could, I'm a relatively slow book writer and that's awkward with a, a traditional publisher because they want you to finish and they're right to want you to finish. They need to have a pipeline of books. Um, and so this gave me the freedom to um, experiment with something that I didn't think would ever necessarily amount to much of a popular book, though it has turned out to be fairly popular. And did you, I actually don't recall, did you, did you publish it um, in progress or did you, did you publish yes. it all at once? Okay. Okay. And what was that experience like? Did you, did that help you get motivated because you started having readers, you know, before you were finished? Um, were people contacting you asking you when's the next chapter coming out? Not that I recall people commenting. I don't to the ex I don't know that I kind of suspect that people will a lot of people will buy the book just as a token of support, but not actually read it until it's pretty close to done. Um, the, I, I'm one of the reasons that I'm, oh yes, it's sort of coming back to me now. So I wanted to investigate certain things like the, that's why the book is somewhat flabby in the later parts, because I wanted to learn a, so what – how can one actually understand and explain monads? So be, I have a habit that was, was the case with the program, a Mac app using Ruby uh, book where I was learning as I – I didn't know how to do that. I was learning how to do it as I wrote the book. I was to a lesser extent learning how to – some of the finer points of dynamic functional programming as I was writing the book. Um, that means that I do a, a lot of revision and rethinking things. And to some extent, uh, publishing chapter by chapter is a little extra constraining because you don't want to go back to chapters you've already written and people have already read and say, oh, now you have to read that again. So I guess I'm not 100% sure about the costs and the benefits of publishing incrementally. Um, I, I know that I'm not Charles Dickens where – you know, you can publish an installment of David Copperfield every month, and he must have had it plotted out in advance. I'm not 
a person who plots things out well in advance? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question around um, in progress publishing, and and you know you're you're touching on something sort of something very interesting, at least to me, which is um, what are the different implications for in progress publishing of something that's you know prescriptive nonfiction and something that's fiction. And so, for example, there are people who enjoy there are readers who really enjoy giving feedback to authors. And so if someone writes a chapter that's, you know, learn how to use this um, uh, and they've got a mistake in it or they, or they go down a path they maybe shouldn't have gone down and then readers respond to them and then they go back and rewrite it. Uh, then when they announce, you know, Hey, I've rewritten chapter two, there actually is a sort of subset of reader that's actually really excited to go back and read the mm. rewritten and read the rewritten chapter. Um, if the changes are very kind of subtle, uh, you know, then, then people might not be so into, or might, might feel a little bit, uh, cheated by having wasted their time on the first, on the first round. And it's, it's something that, you know, as, as we, as Lean Pub, you know, carries on, uh, that, that we're just sort of, you know, seeing evolve in terms of reader expectation and, and author activity, um, with respect to, uh, fiction publishing, um, definitely, people just generally expect when there's an installment of a serial fiction novel, serially published novel, they don't expect chapter one to change later. Mm -hmm. um, I've actually got a novel where I'm doing that on purpose um, uh, to sort of evolve, to change things in accordance with changes in society. But that's a pretty obscure kind of art project um uh one thing i i can say about um uh, well specifically dickens is that um a lot of serial a lot of the one of the reasons that so many of those 19th century novels that we think of are so long is that they started to succeed <laughs> and, and so you know if you're if you're if you're see if you see the circulation of your weekly or your monthly magazine going up because everybody suddenly likes you know, wants to know what Mr. Pickwick's up to next. Um, you might find that your plans for that, for that novel change and, uh, grow, um, you know, sort of like having, you might plan two seasons of something, but then, you know, everybody loves the zombies. So suddenly it's eight seasons or something like that. Um, uh, which is, which is really interesting. Um, and, uh, so, um, you've got a new book out and I just wanted to give you a little bit of an opportunity to, to explain, uh, what that's what that's about and what motivated you to write write that this is uh much more of a of a learning experience for me um i discover all sorts of holes in my understanding when I try to explain things to other people, whether those people are you know physical or imaginary you know constant reader type people. Uh, so I'm using this partly as a incredibly inefficient way to learn about the topic of statically typed functional programming. Uh, the other reason for doing that is I have been in the world of dynamically typed languages for a really long time. Lisp in the 80s, then C, which is, yeah, it's statically typed, but it's not Haskell. Uh, Ruby for such a long time, Clojure. I have never really put the statically typed languages to the test, partly because so much of the underlying philosophy is contrary to my underlying philosophy. Uh, I'm not so much a get it right up front person. I am, even though I was a math and computer science major, uh, my thinking has gotten fuzzier and woollier and less clear cut over the years, uh, which is 
partly just because I'm old, but partly because um, I've become less enamored of artificial categories because the world is not clear cut. Uh, and I've become very, I, I've become enamored uh, in recent years of something that's called embodied embodied cognition or ecological cognition, which is the study of how much organisms can actually accomplish while using as little brain as possible. Uh, because brains are very expensive organs to have. So you want to minimize the use of brains as much as you can. So I've been interested in things like uh, something we mentioned before, uh, tango as a metaphor for the way people, in particular, the following role in tango as a metaphor for how people solve problems and these various philosophy of sciences thing. So we have this, uh, we have this, field static typing which tends to push in the opposite direction from where i am and so in the spirit of trying something new not the same thing for the fifth time really diving into it seemed like it would be educational for me and then the other opportunity I saw in that is I happen to know that a lot of people kind of think like me and respond to the way I explain things, which is very different from the canonical way to teach statically typing. So there is a market niche, an unfilled market niche uh, for somebody like me writing to people like me. Also, I... I started using Elm in my front-end work uh, because I, I really don't – the JavaScript ecosystem and the, all that stuff is just way too much for me to want to learn now. And Elm is a simpler – which is a statically typed programming language – is a simpler – interface to all the complexity of the web ecosystem. And I really, I kind of like Elm and he gives a nice platform to build on rather than diving into one of these, you know, pedal to the metal statically typed. We, everything we know comes from category theory and mathematics types of languages. Yeah. Thanks for that. It sounds like a really interesting project and I, um, Really appreciate you telling us uh, your story over time, including you know where your how your thoughts have become woollier over time. That's um, <laughs> that's really that's a re that was a really um, good description. I thought. Um, uh, I guess our time is almost up here. Um, the last question I'd like to ask you, and um, I'd like to preface this by saying some people just say I can't think of anything, um, but um, uh, if there were one thing, one feature you could ask us to build for you on LeanPub, something that you feel has been missing um, or if there's something we could fix that you've found annoying, uh, what would you ask us to do? Pretty much. I'd say I'm content. Uh, the only things I, that bother me are, are small things. Um, like I've never been able to get set the programming language for this book to work. Um, so all my code samples say, you know, curly brace language equals Elm at the top, but that's just a, you know, paste the thing you've already got stashed. So that's not actually a problem. I posted something about, I want more space after bulleted lists, right. uh, but that's hardly earth shattering. I, I really, off the top of my head, can't think of anything that anything large that I'm missing. Uh, and I am with this book, making it uh, more of a web citizen, rather than here's a here's a source code repository, download everything. It's all the solutions to the exercises are clickable links to a wiki. 
so that people can talk about the solutions. Um, That's and uh, and with all that stuff, there's been even though I don't think that was in the design intent, all of that stuff has just kind of worked the way you'd expect. So, um, is communicating with readers something that you would like to do more or have more opportunity to do? I mean, would us providing more community around the book or, or around books be something that would, that would interest you? Uh, it depends on how rushed I'm feeling at a particular time. Mm. I, I've generally found I put my email address in the book and people send me email. Um, I, for whatever reason, um, perhaps I have some sort of hidden forbidden, some forbidding personality that's not, uh, apparent to me. But generally speaking, I don't get a lot of feedback on writing of any kind of uh, books, blog posts. I am, I, my, I, I'm a, a good public speaker and my talks are solicited by conferences, but it's always been sort of odd and a little bit disappointing that after the talk, people don't flood up and ask me questions. It, they sort of say, yeah, that was good, and then go somewhere else. Uh, so I am probably the wrong person to talk because I am this sort of semi-hermit living in the middle of uh, Illinois, bereft of all human contact uh, and Apparently, that's the way it is for me. It's um, uh, definitely uh, one of the things that is really great about being in, you know, the sort of book world and publishing world is um, all the different types of people uh, that write books and all the different approaches um, that they take and preferences that they have. Mm -hmm. um, I can say I... Uh, I appreciate the one you just described uh, myself, um, uh, and I think quite a few of our authors do. I mean, some people want as much feedback from everybody in any way that they can. Um, others wish they got uh, less, um, uh, you know, attention than they get sometimes. Um, but uh, it does it does uh, take all kinds, and we're um, obviously very glad that you've chosen LeanPub as a platform for your a couple of your writing projects and I'm uh just want to say personally thank you very much for this interview um I really enjoyed it um in particular uh your talk about about science so th okay th thank you very much for taking the time to do the interview uh and uh best wishes for your latest book okay thank you best wishes for lean pub thanks